We did eight chapters in one night. And I had mentioned that First and Second Chronicles, uh, much of what, what went on, particularly in the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, is repeated in First and Second Chronicles. So First and Second Samuel, a lot of what you read there is in First and Second Chronicles. What you do not read in First and Second Chronicles, it was what was going on in the northern kingdom. But we so, I've said it many times in various messages over the years, the purpose of going to church and listening to a message is not supremely to learn something new. Because if that was the case, then I would have had to stop going to church a couple decades ago. It's read the same things um, over and over and over. I think of some of the themes in the New Testament. We're told to obey authorities, government authorities, um, five or six times, I think, in the New Testament. Why is that? Because we hate way. Why is that? Because we all hate submission in any form. We hate it. And so we need to be told over and over. Submission is a beautiful thing, um, but our flesh doesn't like it. But we're told really about the life of David twice. The life of David as a king, that is, twice. The life of David leading up to a king is only in 1 Samuel. It's, it's not in 1 Chronicles. But we're going to read again about the, uh, David as a king in 1 Chronicles. The first, so I, I think it's very important what I had mentioned last time of the audience, the audience of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles is very different than the audience of First uh, and Second Samuel. The audience of First and Second Samuel were the Jews who were exiled to Babylon, and they were basically dragged there in three successive waves by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and. Uh, there's a lot there about, the again, the rebellion of the northern ten tribes. There's, again, nothing about that in First or Second Chronicles, virtually nothing. And there's just, um, it's written to a very different audience. It's almost as if to tell them, here's why you're here. You're wondering why you are in the midst of a land, Babylon, I think 900 miles away from... Uh, Jerusalem, here's why you're here. And so uh, that was First and Second Samuel. First, and, First Chronicles and Second Chronicles is written to a very different audience. In a way, it's a lot more positive. <laughs> if, if, not all of it, believe me. But um, it's a lot more positive and encouraging to read. And that's because the people reading it are the Jews who 
decided to obey God and go back from the exile in Babylon after 70 years and return to the land of Israel. And many of you are familiar with that um, verse that says, not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord. This is one of the most quoted verses, I think, in churches everywhere. The context of that is these same people who had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, and it was rubble. And it's like, how are we going to rebuild this? This is a bunch of rubble. It's a bunch of stones. And uh, it, um, it basically, uh, Zerubbabel, who was the governor, um, was told by Zechariah, he says, speak to this mountain, verse 7, uh, this to this verse 7 of, of Zechariah chapter 4, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstones with shouts of grace, grace to it. I mean, they needed a lot of grace. They needed the power. They needed the Holy Spirit. So they were kind of, although some of them may have had some money, overall they were a disheveled, ragtag group of people mocked by their enemies who saw them come in and return. And uh, they needed an encouraging message. So if you remember from the last time, the entire Bible. I think it is the hardest read. Uh, some people who have not studied the Old Testament will say, oh, it's Leviticus, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. Compared to the first chapters of Eight Chronicles, uh, for first chap, the first eight chapters, rather, of, of First Chronicles, just name after name after name after name. But amongst the names, if the, the, the purpose, as we discussed last time, was to remind these people who are in front of all this rubble, whole genealogy spanning whatever, how long was it? I got a couple thousand years, no longer than that. Uh, let me see, about 3,000 years or 3,500 years or something like that. It, it, it goes from Adam, but then it, it just follows one line. It's the line of the Messiah, the line of David. And it's as if to say, look, you are back here. You see all this rubble. You see this mess, which is Jerusalem. The temple had been burned. They're burnt rocks. They returned to burnt rocks, is what they returned to. And this, this book was written to them, um, as well as the book of Zechariah, by the way, to, to encourage them that you're a great people, and though this may seem the craziest thing in the entire world to you, through you, all nations of the world will be blessed. I got to tell you, Genesis chapter 12, I, this is just such a wonderful chapter. That's where God pulls pagan Abraham just amongst, completely by election, out from a bunch of pagans and says, through you, all, all nations of the world will be blessed. Of course, we know that's through Jesus Christ. Well, you know, it's time and time again, I, I counsel people um, who are in the midst of circumstances that look completely hopeless. And oftentimes I say, look, God has solutions here that you don't know anything about. And uh, 
when you go back and you're with a bunch of ragtag people, defeated people, people who've been living amongst pagans, and you see a bunch of rubble, and you're thinking, we, through us, a Messiah is going to come through whom all the nations of the world are going to be blessed? No way. It's so important that we trust in the Lord. And when they read First and Second Chronicles, they are given hope because they see that God overcomes. God's people overcome when they turn to him and they become a great people. And so uh, that's what the first eight chapters of First Chronicles are about. And I wanted to finish chapter 9 last time, but I had, I had mercy on you. The Bible says that... Um, uh, Begin back in chapter. So begin in chapter nine. It's going to start a description of the people who came back to the rubble. Verse one. So all Israel was recorded by genealogies, and indeed they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel. But Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. And the first inhabitants who dwelt in their possessions in their cities were Israelites, priests, Levites, and the Nethanim. The Nethanim were a group of people that I think um, David gathered because there was such revival in the country, there were not enough Levites to do all the work. So they helped out the Levites and the priests. Verse 3, now in Jerusalem... The children of Judah dwelt, and some of the children of Benjamin, and of the children of Ephraim, and Manasseh. So, the first people called back, um, I will say this, that what you don't have here, But you do, oddly enough, you have at the, let me see, you have at the end of First Chronicles, there is a proclamation by the king. No, it's not at the end of First Chronicles. Let me see. It's at the end of Second Chronicles. You have a proclamation. Well, I'm just going to go to Ezra. Beginning of the book of Ezra, um, Cyrus, the king of Persia, who was now in charge of, the Babylonians had been toppled, um, and now you have Cyrus, king of Persia. He actually makes a proclamation for any Jew who has a willing heart to return to Jerusalem. In other words, return to the homeland. The earth of the Lord God of heavens has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Israel, which is in Jerusalem. And, and so uh, he, the, the, the Lord literally and says, if you're a Jew, go back to Jerusalem. They're 900 miles away. And so these people here um, are listed who actually went back. And the first people to go, verse 3, were of the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh, as well as the tribe of Judah. Uh, they, they lead the way. I think it's important. I think, you know, this, this, this group of people who go back, and we're going to um, 
see some of their names in a second. I mean, these guys are serious heroes. I mean, they're told, go back and rebuild your city. Now, there had been promises um, regarding um, the, the rebuilding of the temple and that type of thing. And so these people, as people always do, no doubt were comfortable in Babylon. And what you're telling me, that I am supposed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild? No way am I going to do that. I'm comfortable here. I, I, I'm not going to go back 900 miles and go um, all the way and, and trudge through. Uh, it, it actually says in Ezra and Nehemiah, this is really dangerous. Uh, there were bandits and, uh, and, and things like that. It was a dangerous trek. It was a long trek um, to, to go back. Um, but they did. And I tell you, it's really on my heart today, just, uh, just uh, being a, a Christian in the United States, just the, the, um, the comfort that we have here, and we get so used to, and God says, okay, you, go do this. No way, are you crazy? I'm comfortable here in my Babylon. And, and you know, to the extent we obey the Lord is the extent we'll see the hand of the Lord. And so oftentimes people come up to me, they're so dried up in their faith, but they've just, and the reason is they just haven't obeyed the Lord. They haven't obeyed the Lord. They're still clinging to the world. They're still clinging to Babylon. You want to see the hand of the Lord? You let go of Babylon, which we are in America, sort of a modern day Babylon, capitalism, merchant, you know, trade, that type of thing has, has, um, has, made this country incredibly wealthy. But these people, I mean, they're some serious heroes. Now, interestingly, when Cyrus gave his proclamation, he said, okay, all you who are Jews with a willing heart, go back, build your, um, build your temple. But in verse 4 of Ezra 1, he says, whoever is left, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold and goods. So finance the operation, whosoever is, whoever is, is left. So people stayed, many Jews stayed in Babylon. I, you know, I, I can't say for sure that they were disobeying the Lord. But clearly the heroes of the Lord were the ones who went back to establish this nation, which really is a light to the nations. Now, I'm a big-time history nerd, and recently I, I read about um, the Sassoon family, who, the Sassoon family was a household term in the 1800s, and they were Jews, and they controlled basically the entire uh, trade of the whole world, uh, silver, cotton, tea, silk. Um, they traded a lot of opium. Opium was a big, big deal um, in the 1800s, and, and they were bankers. And um, they were Jews who uh, were from a family in Baghdad who were originally from Babylon. So they literally traced their lineage not to Israel, but to Babylon. Of course, before Babylon, even their ancestors were in Israel. But a lot of Jews, the point I'm making here is a lot of Jews did stay behind. And this Sassoon Empire, it was a vast empire, they were all 
Jews that um, they, they stuck around, uh, um, and, and eventually they became men of renown right up into the 19th and the 20th century because that family still was incredibly powerful and influential uh, in the 20th century. The three wise men, or we don't know if there were three, right? The, the procession of wise men who came to Jesus were from the east. And people say, well, how do they know about Messiah? How do they know about this? They were probably from Babylon. Jews who had, Jews, either, either Jews or people who learned from the Jews about the Messiah. That's who they were. So some stayed behind, but others went back. And leaders among them, again, were the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh. But there were also um, Levites. So verses 4 through 9 were just different people from the tribes of... uh, Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, verses 10 through 12, were priests. And it's just so important that the life of God was brought to, back to Jerusalem. I mean, can, can you imagine um, just a bunch of uh, Jews going back to, to rebuild the temple, but you don't have any priests, you don't have any Levites. The Levites are listed from verses 14 um, all the way to verse 38. And these were, were, were the workers who would be setting up the temple and working uh, and in charge of the temple, in charge of the worship of God. And these were, they're all listed here. And at the time, they're like, ugh, this is just such a huge sacrifice. It'd be so much easier to stay in Babylon. It's gotten so comfortable here. But no, they went back to, says they, these gatekeepers lodged all around the house of God because they had responsibility and they were in charge of opening it every morning. Sounds like our setup team on Sunday morning, uh, faithful men of God who, who get up. And then other, uh, other uh, Levites, uh, just mentioned in verse 28 again through verse 38. And these people, um, they were the head, not the tail. You know, as Christians, we're told that we are, God makes us the head, not the tail. We're, not, we're supposed to be leaders. Whether you are technically a leader or not, you're, if, if you're following Jesus Christ, you're the head, not the tail, meaning people should be following. Important, every single one of these names, uh, not, not every single one of them, but most of these names. So really heroes, verse 39 through 44, you see the bloodline of Saul. So uh, in 1 Samuel, there's a whole history of what Saul did and sort of the fact that, you know, the... Israelites cried out for a king, but they wanted a king who looked like the kings of other nations, tall, handsome, charismatic. And so God said, okay, I'll give you a king just like other nations. Gave him Saul, and and Saul had a wonderful beginning, but most of his life was just um, uh, from a character standpoint 
was a failure. And this is his genealogy here from verses 39 to 44. Chapter 10 is going to tell the story here at the beginning of how Saul was died in battle. Verse 1 says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. So there was no fear of God. This is a pagan, barbaric world. There's no Geneva Convention. You know, there's, a, there's, there's actually the, the countries of the world got together in Geneva, yeah, like I think before World War II sometime, and made up rules of war. And part of that was how you treated prisoners. Um, and by the way, J Japan was not a signatory, and so Japanese um, prisoner, prisoners of the Japanese were treated far, far worse than um, prisoners of, um, that the Germans took. Um, if you've ever um, seen that, uh, read, or read that book called, is it Unbroken? Um, it's a wonderful book about a man who gives his life to the Lord at then, but he was a Japanese prisoner, and oh boy, did he, he undergo some punishment. But here, you know, the, the, the influence of Christianity did great things. No long, certainly not here. Very barbaric. They would have tortured him. He knew that. And he, it says that he, he says, said to his armor bearer, um, kill me, please. I don't want to get tortured. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore, Saul took a sword and fell on it committed suicide, which is very rare um, occurrences in the Old Testament. There are a couple. Verse 5, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died together, and all their house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they that saw that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their, forsook their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So Saul's almost his entire reign is one frustration after another. And that's what Israel was like under Saul. You know, God was showing Israel, here's what it's like to have a king that looks and acts like kings of all the other nations. And, and so the whole time, their enemies just, they, they, they will see, under King David, there was just an incredible reign, which is a foreshadowing of the millennial kingdom, and the foreshadowing really of the Christian life, where here's, a, now here's the king, a king that God wants, and there was incredible, um, 700, 1,000 miles away, a long way away, but, um, uh, but Saul's reign was just characterized by defeat, and so the Israelites who lived close in that 
western side of Israel, fleed the cities. The Philistines just came in and occupied them. That's what um, happens to Christians when they, they live according to their flesh. The devil would just come in and occupy certain areas of their life. Verse 8, so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they, there was this great defeat, and they're, so they're going out and they're taking all the booty, that's B-O-O-T-Y, that's all the treasure, or the, the, the gold and the armor of the soldiers, and then they happen upon who? King Saul. It's like, whoa, like, here's the king of Israel. He got killed. And so it says here that uh, they stripped him, verse 9, and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of their guards gods, and they fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. Dagon was their god, and so they just put his head, nailed his head right in the, in the temple, and it's their way of saying, you see, that Israelite god, <laughs> look at this. And it's the same thing the world says, by the way, anytime you have a prominent Christian figure go into adultery or get involved in a financial scam, <laughs> they fasten the head of the fallen preacher or the fallen leader, you know, basically onto their temple, the media or, or, or whatever. And they're just doing their jobs, of course, but um, the media, that is, just reporting on this stuff, and they, they don't know any better, but for the grace of God, we'd be doing the same thing, teaching people. Verse 11, and, and when this is interesting. When all Jabesh Gilead heard all that the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons seven days. So what's that about? Why did these men, verse 11 of Jabesh Gilead, risk their lives to go get the bodies of the Philistines, someone should make a movie out of this. I mean, this is like intense. Um, they, they went and they, they got the, the body of, of Saul. Well, 1 Samuel chapter 11, actually it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. If all you knew about Saul was 1 Samuel chapter 11, you would think this guy is one of the heroes of the faith. He is one big stud in that chapter. He had just been made um, king. He was small in his own eyes. Samuel later tells him, when you started to be king, you were small in your own eyes. You were a powerful man. And the people who lived east of the river Jordan, the Ammonites, the king, uh, Nashon, Nashon the, the king of the Ammonites, came and said, you guys, you're going to follow me and pay tribute to me. And by the way, um, part of that is going to be each one of you, you, you got to pluck out you know, one, of your, one of your eyes. And if you don't do it, I'm going to kill all of you. Well, Saul had just been made king. <laughs> and he was small in his own eyes. The Bible says when God, God opposes the proud, but he exalts the humble. And when Saul hears about this, he gets really, really angry. 
but it's a holy anger. And he gathers all Israel to himself, and he says, if you don't join me, I'm going to come after you. They did. They came after them, and they went, and they, he defeated the Ammonites. And it's just like this incredible, incredible chapter. In fact, at the end of the chapter, after the, the, this great defeat of the Ammonites, um, some of the people who were involved in defeating the Ammonites who were Jews said, hey, you know, there are some Israelites. They didn't, they didn't want to fall. He says, no, this is a great day in Israel. We're not going to spoil the party. No, I saw. He was great. He was a great man. Low, but the people of Jabesh Gilead, 40 years later, remembered what Saul had done for them, and they're like, no way, this guy who saved us, we're not going to allow his head to be on the wall of a pagan temple. They went back and they got the body of Saul. I, I, if anyone in here wants to write, do a movie about that, I will watch your movie. Uh, that, is, that, that must have been some uh, incredibly um, daring uh, thing that they did to do that, especially he had committed against the Lord because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. So if you want to go try to talk to your dead grandfather or something like that, that's a serious sin. Um, when, when, when I was in China, we were out in a, a remote place with my brother, and uh, every single house, it was really interesting, we were going through a remote vi village, and every single <laughs> Every single house, people were pleading with us. Who are these white people? Alter to their ancestors. But it's a serious sin in the Bible. And uh, it's not only in China, but many other places, including some places in this country, I have no doubt. This, that kind of stuff is imported in. Um, but he consulted a medium. It's, it's, in, it's interesting. When it, when it says a medium, that means an intermediary with the dead. Uh, it, 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 Saul did that, but um, it also says more generally, he didn't keep the word of the Lord, so he died for his unfaithfulness. Now, Jonathan also died, right, in that same battle. And Jonathan was a tremendous man of God. So just because someone dies in a war does not mean that they are dying because of unfaithfulness. You know, I, I, from time to time, someone asks me, these terrible things are happening in my life. It's nothing to do with that. Uh, Jonathan died just because he was a casualty of, of the sin of Adam. And so, so oftentimes, uh, we're a casualty of the sin of Adam. The good news is that God works all things together for good who love, who love God and are called according to his purpose. Um, and so... And, and it says he consulted a medium, verse 14, but he did not inquire of the Lord. So important to just be seeking out the Lord every day and inquiring of him. Why, Lord, is this happening? Or praise you, Lord, that this is happening. Why are you so good to me? You know, we can inquire. When we inquire, not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Interesting here, um, very much um, in the Bible, when it comes to judgment against wicked people. 
uh, it, it's, it sometimes is the Lord actually takes out the people um, and it uses that terminology. My son Sam uh, pointed out to me one time when I was uh, talking about Saul and uh, what a bad example he was for all of us. He says, you know, you need to be careful of that because Jews still name their kids Saul to this day. In fact, the Apostle Paul, his name was Saul. I used to work some with a guy named Saul. And so the, the Jews do rever um, him for the reason that he was the first king of Israel. He did start off good. He is worthy of honor. When he died, David had a song written just for the honor of Saul. So I, 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 I make up for my bad deeds. Um, Sam. Hope that was good enough. But it's a good point. At Hebron, by this time he had already been ruling in Israel six or seven years. So when Saul was first, when Saul was first uh, killed, David went to his tribe, the tribe of Judah, and they made him king. So he was king at that time of Judah and Benjamin. The uh, the other ten tribes, it was not so fast, um, because Saul had, did have a son who had not gone into battle. What was his name? Ishbosheth? Was that his name? Ishbosheth? It's kind of hard to uh, pronounce. I'll look it up right now. Uh, and he was just a very weak uh, Man, he was. It's probably why he wasn't out um, in the in the battlefield. Uh, let me see. Uh, the Saul's general Abner um, just dominated him. Slept with one of his concubines or or wives, and uh, I mean that's a lot of disrespect when a general is sleeping with one of the concubines of of the king. And but but after a while, he was. Um, put to death, he was um, assassinated, and, and then um, the, after, at about year seven, so David had been, so David first became king just of Judah and Benjamin in the south, he ruled in Hebron, not in Jerusalem, but after Ishbosheth's death, Abner came over, um, he brought the, the other tribes to David, to Hebron, and David became, Israel, uh, became king over all 12 tribes, all the nation of Israel. And that's where it says in chapter 11, then all Israel came together to Hebron, saying, indeed we are your bone and your flesh, meaning we're your cousins. Also in times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, you shall be shepherd you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. So this is kind of interesting. Um, this had been known uh, even during Saul's reign, apparently 
it was generally known that David had already been anointed by the prophet Samuel and that he was to be the, the, the future ruler um, of Israel. But I love here, this is really important. It may not seem a lot to us, but it says, you shall shepherd my people Israel. So it, it not only means you shall shepherd my people Israel, it also, and, and, sorry, it not only says you, sh- you shall be the ruler over my people, it also says you shall be the shepherd of my people the shepherd of my people, which is a huge difference with secular kings like Pharaoh, where the country really existed for Pharaoh's pleasure and to shepherd God's people. And there is all the difference in the world. And even to this day, there's dictators around the world who, I mean, the, the, the country's all about one guy, <laughs> It, 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 the, the country really exists for the pleasure of him. And, and, and so, but not so with God's people. With God's people, it says, you shall shepherd my people. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, leads me besides quiet waters, and he restores my soul. I had a wonderful conversation with um, Eric, Pastor Eric, about what makes a shepherd, a pa- meaning a pastor, what, what really is a pastor? Someone who is called to be a pastor, what, what attributes do they have? Um, and what we both concluded as we just studied and looked at it, it's, it's, it's a man who pursues people people to disciple them, or a man that people go to him in order to be discipled, and he responds obediently, and he disciples them. He shepherds them. Uh, That is what a shepherd does. He pursues people to disciple that responds, yes, I, I, I want to shepherd you. And, and David, of course, he had that heart. He, and we'll, we'll see that in a little bit. He, he really had that heart um, to shepherd people. Verse 3 says, Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king of Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. Remember, years through a 10 to 20 year preparation period, um, he goes through a 10 to 20 year preparation period. You read about the preparation period in the first 20 or 30 or or 40 Psalms where he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not only a messianic psalm about what Jesus would say on the cross. That's what David felt like when he's being prepared by the Lord to do what he was called to do, eventually, be the king of Israel. I mean, he went through, he, he would go to one part of Israel, the inhabitants would rat him out, they would go and tell Saul that David's here, he'd go into the next um, part of Israel, he'd save them from the Philistines, but that still didn't endear them to him. He'd get ratted out by them too. Betrayals after betrayal after betrayal. He, he, all those psalms, or rather many of those psalms were just David crying out, what in the world is going on, God? Psalm 13, God, how long am I going to cry out and you're not going to hear? 
And, and it was during that time that David is being, um, uh, he's just being humbled and trained to be king. So right here in 1 Chronicles chapter 11, he is being made king here. They've, they're actually making him king at the end of verse 3. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebos, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, you shall not come in here. So David went up to this, this city, which at the time, it was not named Jerusalem, it was called Jebus. And he says, okay, give up. I want this city. I want this city to be the capital of, uh, of, of Israel, the, 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 the place of Israel, where the worship of God is going to be. And they said, no chance. You shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the strongholds of Zion, that is the city of David, meaning the places right around Jerusalem. And then he says in verse 6, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief, where um, we find out exactly how Joab did that he he actually went up a water shaft he snuck up a water shaft into the city of of the Jebus um, of Jerusalem and there's he led them in and he, and he took over the city and it says um, verse 7 then David dwelt in the stronghold therefore they called it the city of David he built the city around it from the Milo uh, Milo was like a stronghold, um, a big stone stronghold. To the surrounding area, Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David went on your legacy. Don't you want, after you go to be with the Lord, people to say of you, the Lord of hosts was with her. The Lord of hosts was with him. What an incredible thing to be said about a life. That's what I want to be remembered as. And remember, the, uh, the, 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 remember who this is written to. It's to pr probably a very discouraged, overwhelmed people. They had returned to Jerusalem. It was a city of rubble. They were told to build a temple. There's enemies all around. They're filled with fear. And here they're, being, here they're remembered that it was established by David and the Lord of hosts was with them and David made that city and the whole nation great. So it must have been a great encouragement to them to be reading this. Verse 10, now these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom with all Israel to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Jeshubim, the son of a Hakmanite, chief of the captains, he had lifted up his spear against 300 killed by him at one time. So, from this verse, verse 11, all the way to the end of the chapter, there is a list of David's mighty 
men. That's very, very important. David was a shepherd. He was a pastor. He was a, he was a prophet. He was a king. He was also a pastor. And why do I say that? Because turn back with me to 2 Samuel chapter... Um, no, no, 1 Samuel chapter 22. Chronicles 11. And he, but it was 20 years before. It says, David, therefore, depart. this is when he's being chased by Saul. This is, not, this is way before he became king. Probably about 20 years, 15, 20 years. David, David, therefore, departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And he church plant, you know, you'll hear from a pastor of, I just have a bunch of misfits with me. What is going on? And it's a very dangerous thing, by the way, to talk about your own sheep like that. I have some stories that are very frightening that happened to, to people who, who talked about their, their pastor like that. But the fact of the matter is, it's the Gideon principle. God always uses the least, the foolish, the despised to shame the mighty. And so these mighty men listed in First Chronicles Chapter 11, when they came to David, they were just discontented. They were a bunch of complainers. They just complained. Don't you hate being around complaining people? Well, that's what happens when God is starting a, a, a work. Just people who are discontented, complainers, people who are in debt, people who are in distress. But within 10, 15, 20 years, they are mighty men, and that's what the Lord wants to do with you. It's what he wants to do with you. Man, on, on most of my prayer walk today, I was just thinking to myself, rather than focusing so much on what would Jesus do in this situation, I should be focusing more, and I should be praying for people of Calvary Chapel in the city to be focusing more and thinking like Jesus. It's a lot better to think like Jesus than to just do what Jesus did. Because if you just do what Jesus did, that's an external righteousness. It's an external rightness. And just really focusing on character. Robert Murray McShane said this, he said, above all things, cultivate your spirit. And it's true, because if we don't cultivate our spirit, if we don't not daily repenting before the Lord, we're not useful to the Lord. It says in 2 Timothy 20 through 22, in a large house, there's many vessels. Some used for noble purposes, others for ignoble purposes. Some of 
gold and silver, others of wood and clay. If a man or woman gets rid of the latter, he will be made useful to the master, ready for every good work. That's what God wants to do with you. He wants to make you into a mighty man, a mighty woman. And that's, that's who we... That, that's in, 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 so we were reading about these mighty men who used to be just people in distress, in debt, discontented. So this one guy kills 300 people by himself. After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Alahite, who was one of the three mighty men. He was with David at Pisdamim. Now there were the Philistines were gathered there for battle. And there was a piece of ground full of barley. Barley, but it was God's barley. So everyone else fled, not, not, not him. He was a mighty man. He had been pastored by David to be a mighty man. Verse 15, now three of, of the 30 of chief men were went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam and the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the uh, Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with a longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out um, to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives they broke brought it. Therefore, we would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. So David pouring this water out. You can imagine being one of those three guys. I mean, we risked our lives for this. You're pouring it out. It just reminds me, though, of the sacrifice of the widow. She gave two mites her entire livelihood. And this is just, David's a worshiper. He's a man after God's own heart. That's why God prospered his kingdom so much. And he just pours it out before the Lord. Verse 20 says, Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three. He had lifted up his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Of the three, he was more honorable than the other two men. Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Verse 22, Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Gabzeel who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits in all, that's seven and a half feet, uh, he's taller than Joel Embiid. In the e- Egyptian's hand, there was a spear like a weaver's beam. He went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the hand, Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did, and won a name among the three mighty men. And so then it just goes on to list the rest of the mighty men. 